turn to the book of Nahum. We're going to be in chapter three this morning, and we're going to finish up uh, the book. And so, you know, we've been calling this uh, a prophetic newspaper, right? (laughs) Newspaper usually record events that have already happened. Prophecy is you're looking at events that haven't happened. So typically those words don't go together. But in the case of God who knows the past from the future and knows everything, he can write a prophetic newspaper. He can tell us what's going to happen as if it's already happening. He's been doing that in Nahum. And as we wrap up this morning, we're going to just continue to read about the futility of Nineveh's defense. Remember, Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. This was the, the bullies of the day. This was the terrorists of the day. This was the, the Taliban, the Al-Qaeda, all mixed up into one people group. And the way that they conquered people, severed heads, flayed people alive, stacked heads on Paul. I mean, they were brutal, vicious savages. And so this is going to be God's, the, the final nail in Nineveh's coffin. He's about to, we're going to watch him just hammer it in right now. It's done. Nineveh is done. And this is where, if you want to say the ink runs out on Nahum's prophecy, you know, he stops writing. He, he, he recorded the oracle. He recorded the vision that he saw. And he's, he's done here. And God has said enough. God has made it very clear what he's going to do to Nineveh. And in 50 years from the writing of this book, he's going to execute this justice. And we're going to see the entire world is going to have one response to the destruction of this city. And it's going to be this. Yes. <laughs> About time. About time these guys are taken care of. And so we're going to pick up here in verse 11. Some of this is repeated, but again, it's just incredible detail that God gives us beforehand as it relates to the destruction of the city, which is also verifiable in historical and archaeological accounts. And so it's just incredible how detailed God is. Well, in verse 11, we read this, speaking of the Ninevites, you also will be drunk. You will be hidden. You also will seek refuge from the enemy. And you know, when you look at historical accounts and you look at the historical siege of Nineveh, this capital city, that hours before the siege began, the Ninevite soldiers were drunk. That's, that's exactly what history tells us. In fact, they were so incapacitated that, uh, you know, I don't know if you've ever been around a drunk person, ever been a drunk person, but you, you understand that when you're inebriated, you, you just don't move the same. You, you tend to stumble. You tend to run around. Well, they were running around the city, running into each other. And we're going to see in this passage, they were also running out of the city, knowing that they were in no state to, to take on enemy soldiers. And, and history tells us, uh, in fact, the historian Diodorus tells us that that very night, which... <laughs> Uh, terrible timing on the part of the king of Assyria. But, you know, they, they were very confident in their city. They, they, were, they thought, man, we're fortified. We've got all these strongholds. There's no one going to break into our city. And so that very night, as they are besieged around the city by this coalition of forces, the, the king says, you know what? I need to cheer my soldiers up. They're sitting here waiting for this impending break-in. And so I'm going to send them large provisions of food and large provisions of wine. And I'm going to let them have a party just inside the walls. Terrible timing. Because that's the very night that God sent a flood. They held back the water. And if you remember, the coalition forces opened that, that sluice gate. And then all that water busted in busted open a gate and gave them entrance into the city. And then all of a sudden, you know you know, you've got a bachelor party, except they're supposed to be fighting a battle. Everything is haywire. They're incapacitated. So history tells us that's exactly what happened. Then it says they will be hidden. They will seek refuge from the enemy. And and part of it is because of their overwhelmed and and just weakened state. 
the, the, the bullies on the block were in no, uh, no shape to fight anybody. So what are they trying to do? They're trying to hide. They're trying to run. They're trying to get away. And this is what's so ironic about this situation is God steps in to judge them. They are now going to experience what many other nations had experienced on the other side of their spear. The Assyrians just breathed fear into people. And when the Assyrians tacked and, and besieged cities, people would, would hide and try to get away. And you know what? The Ninevites and the Assyrians were so brutal, they wouldn't let anybody get away. They slaughtered everybody. They came after everybody. Now the tables are turned. This is exactly what God is telling them in verse 11. You're going to seek refuge from the enemy, but the implication is you're not going to find it. Your day has come. And so we move on to verse 12, because this is so important to see with the Ninevites, because they were so dependent, they were so overconfident in their strongholds. You know, it's like growing up, I was, for many years, I, you know, I'm a sports fanatic, but for many years, I was a Boston Celtics fan. And, and I was a Boston Celtics fan because of who? Anybody? Early 80s, mid 80s? No. That's before, 60s. No, you're, no, 67, yeah. there we go, Larry Bird, but Bill Russell before that too. I just wasn't alive then. Larry Bird though, as long as Larry Bird was playing, I had confidence my team was gonna win because I believed in Larry Bird. He was a stronghold to me. Any Bulls fans in the mid-90s, you knew you were gonna win, why? Michael Jordan, okay, or Mitch Cupcat. No, just kidding, Michael Jordan, right? Because you knew he was going to take over the game. You knew he was going to close it out. They, they would be viewed as strongholds. You know, the Assyrians felt the same way, the Ninevites, about their city. No one can break into here. We've got these walls. We'll talk about the walls later, but they were, this wall surrounding Nineveh proper was like seven and a half miles long. It was 50 feet thick, 100 foot tall. No one's busting in there. Oh, no, by the way, outside the wall, there was a moat of water that surrounded the city. So imagine having an army cross over. They're fortified. They, no one's breaking into here, right? And so notice how God now describes their strongholds. The very thing that they're placing their confidence in, look at verse 12. He says, all your strongholds are fig trees with ripened figs. If they are shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Again, stronghold means fortification, defensive, protective structure. This is everything that would have made them feel safe. Okay, there's armies outside. Who cares? They're, they're never going to get in here. We're safe. As long as we can stay alive in here, we'll be okay. But again, it, you think about the walls. You think about the water. I, I think I mentioned in a previous sermon that they had, a, they had 40 acres dedicated and devoted to artillery and chariots to set up so that they widened the roads so that their army could have movement where they needed to be to defend the city. They were set like, like nobody's business to be fortified. And yet God is describing this as they're going to be like fig trees. These are the very things that gave them confidence. And I went too fast there. But one of the things that, that God refers to their stronghold is, is ripened fig trees. Now, I have to be honest with you. I don't know anything about fig trees. I had to look this up. I mean, I don't even like fig newtons, you know? So I mean, I, I, I had to look this up because I'm like, what is, what is the imagery here? Now, those of you that know fig trees, you, you got this right away. Like this was, an, oh, that's really interesting. What, a, what an incredible visual. But what they say is when fig trees are ripened, it doesn't take much to shake them off. You know, they say that when fig trees are ripe, you can just hit a branch and all of the figs will just fall down for you. 
And talk about a job I would love to have, you know, not walking around like picking apples, just fig trees, you know, do, do, just hit the branches. They all fall down. I pick them up. So this is what the imagery that he's saying. Your strongholds are going to be like fig trees with ripened figs. In other words, they're going to fall down. You're trusting in them, but they are weak. They're getting ready to fall down. And not only that, what does he say? He says they're not going to stop this coalition of armies and that they would eat up the Ninevites. And again, figurative language, they're going to destroy them. They're going to fall. They're not going to hold up and they're going to be eaten up. In fact, historians tell us that some of the cities out in the suburbs fortified, other fortified cities outside of Nineveh proper had been destroyed two years prior to 612 when Nineveh was destroyed. So you see all this thing coming in. Now, you see the strongholds are not going to come up. So what is the second line of defense, right? If the strongholds get taken down, they're shaking like fig trees, they don't worse. What's your second line of defense? Well, it's your valiant soldiers, right? You're expecting them to kind of step into the gap and start, you know, cracking heads of the guys running in. Well, notice what he says here. Their strongholds would not hold up. But notice as we go to verse 13 as well, um, we're going to see that they have a weakened defense. Look at verse 13. It says, surely your people in your midst uh, are women. The gates of your land are wide open for your enemies. Fire shall devour the bars of your gates. And so he says that his, the people are going to be like women. And all that's saying is this, is that the strength of their defense would not be that prototypical, valiant, strong, brave soldier, but that of an average woman. Now, in this day, obviously, you know, it's changed a little bit in our day, but women did not typically fight in battles, okay? And that's more of a recent change, actually, in our day. But that's been kind of the case throughout history because they were viewed as, as easy and vulnerable targets. They were weaker physically than men. So we wouldn't put them out. And, you know, you've heard that old saying, you know, save the women and children, you know, kind of deal. It's kind of like you put the women and children behind, you let your valiant soldiers out front to defend. He's just saying here, the people in your midst are women. In other words, that's how weak your defense is going to be. So not only is your fortifications like figs getting shaken down, but now the defense inside is going to be as weak as well. Uh, it could also reflect the aftermath of this. When, when you've got these drunken soldiers running around killing and being, or, or being slaughtered, they're all dead and the only people left in the city are women. Is kind of the, the image that you have. And so we see the strongholds are torn down. We see their valiant soldiers have been removed through death. And we're going to see cowardice here in a second. In other words, they either died or they got out of the city. They ran with the, their tail between their legs. And now he's going to provide a little bit of details, which is fascinating because as we get into this next phrase, I mean, we read it because we had the benefit of history looking back um, but, and we read it, but the understand this, that the fact that these gates were breached was, was a miracle. Nobody would have ever thought that the gates of Nineveh could ever have been busted open. But notice what the Lord says about them here through the hand of Nahum. The gates of your land are wide open for your enemies. Fire shall devour the bars of your gates. So I had mentioned, I started talking about this, but Nineveh was a city that boasted 15 gates spread all uh, around the city. They had t multiple towers, right? Because you'd put watchmen up there to see where the enemies were coming from. And this was a incredibly fortified city. The walls were 100 feet tall. They were 50 feet deep. It was seven and a half miles around the city. Now, I brought this map up a couple times. You can kind of see the gist. I know you can't read anything. It's too small. But this is the walled-in city. All of these little bumps here are the gates. 
sliding around the city. We see again the Tigris River out here, the Kosar River sliding through here. And we see this water moat all around the city. It was fortified. But again, as we've talked about, the enemy forces sieged the city, controlled the water flow in the city, waited for it to flood and rain, and then they popped open the gate and it bust open the gates, just like we're reading about here. And they were viewed as strongholds. The, the Ninevites were proud of these gates. Their enemies were afraid of these gates. They didn't think there was any way they could get in. And so these gates uh, in the Hebrew are described as being wide open. You'll see that kind of in your text there in verse 13. It's, it's, what's, it's what's called in the Hebrew an infinitive construct. And what that, it has the idea that it, you could translate it opened, they are opened. It seems like you're just repeating the same thing. That's how it actually looks in Hebrew. It looks like it's like open, open. <laughs> the gates were open, open. But the way it's put together is that opened, they are opened. It's just kind of an interesting phrase. And I think what it brings uh, to bear is that God opened them through the events that he put together, and thus they were burst open. It's kind of the idea. So you, you kind of see this, that there's a, a divine plan behind this. Obviously, God is predicting that this is going to happen 50 years prior to when it did. And so uh, one of the things, oh, I, I took the picture down. One of the things is, is history tells us that, that that gate burst from the northwest side of the city, coming from where a reservoir was, and that's why they believe they held the water supply back and burst it through. But what they had thought was impenetrable, God made penetrable. That's the point. What they had trusted in, God burst for you. And, and as we saw before in chapter three and at the end of chapter two, if God is against you, it doesn't matter what you got going for you. And that's where the Ninevites found themselves at this point in history. History also tells us, and we'll kind of get into this in other verses, is when those gates burst down, they were already inside trying to build additional walls of defense. They just didn't do it. Obviously, they couldn't do it quick enough to help. Fires shall devour the bars of your gates. And so the floodwaters burst open the gates, but when we see history, archaeological records, the city was ultimately burned down. And so you'll see uh, archaeological excavations will show that uh, they found charred wood, they found charcoal, they found ashes, they found trace of uh, burning in the temple. They found two inches thick of ashes all over the city in different spots. And so they were burnt to a crisp. And the, what's so ironic too is, is if God is not clear here in Nahum, guess what he does? He drops another piece of clarity in the book of Isaiah. Because in Isaiah, he's pronouncing a woe against the, the Assyrians, the king of Assyria, this city of Nineveh. And this is what he says in chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. He says, therefore the Lord, the Lord of hosts, will send leanness among his fat ones, and under his glory he will kindle a burning like the burning of a fire. So the light of Israel will be for a fire and his holy one for a flame. It will burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day. And that's speaking of the city of Nineveh. So God gives this clear prediction really all over the scriptures of what he's going to do with the city. And that's exactly what history tells us happened. And so again, we're reading a prophetic newspaper. It's, it, it's mind-blowing to know, and it, and it really shouldn't be if we know the character of God, but it's mind-blowing to see God predict the future and then it happen exactly the way that he says it. And oh, by the way, because he does that all the time in the Bible, guess what else we can trust? His other promises. <laughs> that's, the, that's the whole point. I mean, that's, that's a great application for us because you look at John 3, 16, 
We talked about this a lot with with people yesterday, but there's two promises in John 3, 16 to the person who simply believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why do we have to believe in Jesus specifically? Because he's the one who died for us and rose again. And the reason he died for us is the wages of sin was death. He took that penalty upon himself. But the person that believes on him gets two promises. Should not perish means you don't have to face the death penalty. Why? Because your substitute faced it for you. His death counts in your place. Second promise, you have eternal life and eternal life lasts forever. So if you have life that lasts forever, you cannot lose it by definition. If you got eternal life the moment you believed and you can lose it 10 years later, then it wasn't eternal life. It was 10-year life. You see, God is the one making those promises. And the same thing that he says here and predicts the future, keeps his promises, it's the same God that's making promises to you if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. And that's where we see this and we say, well, well, what does Nahum have to do with my daily life? Well, how about look at the character of God and get real encouraged that you got a God that keeps his promises, that knows the past from the beginning. He's not gonna make you a promise today and go, oops, I didn't see that one coming. (laughs) I'm gonna have to take that one back. I didn't see all these contingencies happening. He's not like that. He's exactly who he says he is. He does exactly what he says he's gonna do. Now, we move into verse 14, and it's interesting. There, there's a Hebrew scholar by the name of Walt Kaiser, and, and I thought he handled this passage really well, so I'm kind of stealing from him. But he said that, that Nahum ends with two taunt songs. You know, taunt, like taunting. You know, they, they got a new thing in, in basketball, or I, mean, I don't know if it's new, but it's, it seems to be more prevalent today. But if you taunt somebody, you get a technical foul, or you get kicked out of the the game. Taunting is like talking trash. And I've said that before. It's kind of it's fun when you get into the Bible, especially if you've got an athletic background. Not that talking trash is good. Young people, don't, don't do it. Um, but in some ways, it's kind of fun to see when God is kind of talking trash or taunting in a way. The, the, the irony of that, because he knows what it's gonna, what's going to happen, and as he's executing justice on arrogant, proud godless individuals. It's kind of fun to see that. So uh, Walt Kaiser said that this book ends with two taunt songs. The first one's found here in verses 14 through 17. The second one is 18 through 19. And the taunt songs are designed to do what? It's designed to pump up the nation of Judah. It's designed to take Nahum's audience and get them excited about their God to see that God is calling this shot and then God's going to perform the shot. And they're going to say, that's my God, Right? Don't you feel that way when somebody you know calls their shot and do it and it's like, that's my God. That's, that's my guy. That's my girl. That's my friend. That's my buddy. That's my whoever did that. Well, this was designed for them to say, you know what? That's my God. That's what my God can do. I, we need to trust him. That was what it was designed to do for the nation of Judah. And so what we're going to see in verses 14 through 17, it's kind of funny it's kind of ironic because Nahum is, it's like he's urging on the Ninevite defenders, even though God has pronounced judgment on them. It's like he's their cheerleader, but he's doing it like in an ironic, kind of sarcastic way. Because it's almost like, yeah, you should do this. You should do this. You should do this. And oh, ha ha, it's never going to work, you know, kind of, kind of deal. And this is how he approaches this. And let's start with verse 14. We'll kind of look at this first taunt song. He says, draw your water for the siege, fortify your strongholds, go into the clay and tread the mortar, make strong the brick kiln. 
And so it's a, right here, it's this tongue-in-cheek encouragement, right? Go go draw the water. Go fortify your strongholds. Go go into the clay and, and make brick kiln. Why is he doing that? You know, start building some extra walls inside the city for additional strongholds. All of this, by the way, is great advice if you're being sieged. In this day and age, this would have all been great, sound military strategy, all of this stuff. In fact, when you talk about drawing water, um, part of the reason they did that is because, you know, that was how you survived a siege. If you, if you ran out of water, you started to starve to death and you started to die. So you'd have to come outside of the city and surrender to find water. So if they brought water in or had a water source in, they could survive this siege. And this is exactly what history tells us. Again, it was a coalition of forces. Uh, the Medes had tried to destroy Nineveh in 614. They weren't strong enough. They had taken some of the cities on the outside in the suburbs. They went back and they partnered up with the Babylonians um, and a couple of other nations. And this coalition of forces came in and sieged Nineveh in around 612 BC. And so he says, draw water. Again, providing for the, the essentials to live life for long periods of time in the city. Also used for what though? Other enemies, as they're sieging, what do they typically do? I mean, you've seen the movies. They shoot fire arrows into the city and they try to start setting stuff on fire. So you want to have extra water in there to put out these fires to survive the siege. So good, again, good sound military advice. He also basically tells them fortify or strengthen your, your, your strongholds. Um, proverbially, he's like, check all the doors, lock down all the windows, make sure we're, we're totally, you know, we're airtight in our defenses as it relates to our strongholds. Again, great advice. Then he tells them, go into the clay, tread the mortar, make strong the brick kiln. And so the instruction here is to make additional emergency walls. And you know, history bears out the fact, archaeology bears out the fact that they started scrambling, making bricks to build additional walls within the city. You go all through the ruins of Nineveh, they're still discovering fragments of stone and mud bricks from walls. There's, there's traces of counter walls that they have built that were also knocked down in the destruction of the city. So it's just ironic because this is exactly what Nahum's telling them to do. It's like he's their cheerleader. Yeah, y'all should do this. And it's so ironic because that's exactly what they did. And it still didn't work. And that's the whole point. He's taunting them. He's, he's giving a taunt song. Now, the next uh, passage here is, is really interesting. Uh, let's read it here. Verse 15. It says, There the fire will devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will eat you up like a locust. Make yourself many like the locust. Make yourself many like the swarming locust. Uh, do you see a repeated word there in verse 15? It's like he gets locked into this image of locusts. And, and again, I had to look this up. I mean, I don't, we don't deal with locusts. I mean, if he would have said something like mosquitoes, like I would have gotten that one, you know, but, but locusts, you know, in this area, they were known for, known for what? Well, they would come in bunches, right? And, and within a short period of time, they would completely devour an agricultural field full of food. They were terrible. It was a terrible thing to have a swarming locust. And so it's interesting. And they always came in bunches, just kind of like this picture reflects. But before we get there, it says the, the fire will devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will eat you up like a locust. So again, it's just, it's describing the way the city would be burnt uh, to the ground. But then he says this, make yourself many like the locust. And, and, and again, it's just this ironic, sarcastic, taunting kind of statement. And, and, and part of that is, 
is this. When, you, when, you're, uh, when you're fighting a, an army, what's one of the solutions? Get more soldiers, right? Get reinforcements. That's kind of the idea here, is, is get more soldiers. Get, get more reinforcements. And again, he knows that God has already pronounced destruction. So this is kind of tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, get as many soldiers as you want to get. Make yourself many like the locusts. It still ain't going to work, is kind of the idea. And so this is what he's saying. More weapons, more money, more people is typically the answer in these situations, but even this wouldn't stop God's judgment of them. Now, as we kind of keep moving through this taunt song, one of the things Nahum's going to point out, it, it, he starts, to, he starts to, to just keep going down the hill of insult because now he's going to add additional insult to injury as we get into verse 16 because you've got these people who have come into the city of Nineveh. They're, they're merchants, they're commercial uh, merchants who have come into the city of Nineveh. And why did they come to the city of Nineveh? Well, why do any commercial merchants move into any city? More money to be made, more, more loot, you know, more trade, more opportunities to get rich, right? And so Nineveh had been plundering nations all over the world, robbing their storehouses of wealth. Remember, they, uh, history tells us that the, the, the booty, the plunder from the city, that they basically, each army carried off as much as they wanted and didn't even get it all. I mean, that's how wealthy they were. And so now you've got these merchants who had benefited from the success of the Ninevites, and now they're gonna abandon them too. They're, they're not even gonna take up arms. There's no loyalty to, to the city of Nineveh. They're gonna start robbing from them too on their way out of town, trying to avoid these enemy soldiers on their way out. So verse 16 tells us, you have multiplied your merchants more than the stars of heaven. Again, the locust plunders and flies away. Nahum kind of gets stuck on this locust theme <laughs> for a little bit, but he's, he's switching who he's talking about. So we kind of try to, with the context to kind of keep up with what he's saying here. But he says the Assyrians, um, due to their plundering, had, had become a haven of trade and all sorts of commercial activity. Uh, like any big city, again, capitalistic merchants. You know, capitalism was alive and well in that day. And that's, and that's exactly what they did. They thought they could make money. They came into these big cities. They thought, well, I'm like, I can buy, sell, trade. I can make a lot of profit here. So I'm just going to camp my business here. And merchants just flooded into the city of Nineveh. So to say that the merchants would be more than the stars of heaven, what's that communicating? There was a ton of them. There was a ton of merchants, almost too many to count. And you know, that's the case when cities are, are booming economically. Don't you start seeing more and more businesses coming in, more and more people coming in. That's one of the things when you've lived in a small city, you kind of hope like the merchants stay far enough away. They don't come into your backyard, right? I, I mean, even driving around Noonan with people that have lived here for a while, they'll say, man, I remember when that was all trees. <laughs> and it's like, Ashley Park used to be trees. I thought Ashley Park's been there forever, you know, but, but it's like the, the merchants pile in when people are there and to make money. Now, here's what's so interesting about it is they had piled into this city. Everyone in the world knew how Nineveh had gotten wealthy. Everyone knew. They had destroyed people. They had savagely murdered children and women all over the world. They had stolen. They had intimidated. They were brutal savages. Merchants didn't even care because the merchants only think in one term, don't they? Money, green. They thought, I don't, I don't care how they got their money. I just want a piece of it. And so you can already, you can already see 
the mindset of a capitalistic merchant in this day making their living, making their wealth on a city like Nineveh. And this shows their character because guess what happens? As these coalition forces burst in, guess what the merchants did? They started stealing the plunder themselves and running out of town. They didn't care. They weren't defending Nineveh. They had no skin in the game for the Ninevites. They had no skin in the game for that city. They're going to steal as much as they can. And then guess what they're going to do? Go to the next biggest city where they can do their, 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 prop, you know, their, their business. And so it says, it, it, it describes them now as the locusts plundering and flying away. So they didn't show loyalty. They didn't take up arms. They just plundered as much as they could from the city. They'll strip the city of, of its wealth, much like a locust would strip a land of its vegetation. And, and the point is, is it expresses the, the quickness of how all this turned. One day they're running their business. The, within a night, they're stealing and running out of town. It's just quick riches to rag story that we see here in the city of Nineveh. And so it's, it's, it gets worse. Nobody's even coming to their defense is, is Nahum's point as he goes through this. They'd be looting the land just like locusts destroy luscious vegetation. That's exactly what these merchants would do. Now, as if that's not bad enough, you could kind of expect that with disloyal merchants that don't really care about the city, but you would expect hardcore nationalistic Ninevites to what? Fight to the death. They should fight to the death. But it gets worse because in verse 17, he's going to mention another group of people who now abandoned the city of Nineveh. But it's not who you would think it would be. It's actually their own leaders. (laughs) And so it just keeps getting worse. And so we look at verse 17, it says, your commanders, notice again, he sticks with the theme of locusts. They are like swarming locusts. And your generals like great grasshoppers, which camp in the hedges on a cold day. When the sun rises, they flee away and the place where they are is not known. Now, this was one of those messages I just had to keep looking stuff up because I just don't know anything about bugs either. Locusts, grasshoppers, what, how do they act? What's he trying to illustrate here? But one of the things that, that I guess uh, science and study of these animals will tell you is that oftentimes they'll camp in the shade. And then when the heat turns up, the sun hits them, they'll, they'll fly away and find a more comfortable place. And then I did some more research. This is when you, you, you know, you're borderline nerd, you know, you're kind of going a little too far here. But I, but I thought you'd find it interesting that, that physiologically, these animals, when they sit in the shade overnight, it, it gets cold enough that their wings actually become weak, um, they become stiff, and they become lifeless. So even if they faced an event in the dark where they needed to move or fly, it would be very difficult for some of them. They can't, they can't move. But once the sun hits them in the morning, Their their wings kind of loosen up and and they fly away. And so this is the illustration of what he's saying. And so when you see the the leaders of Nineveh, when the heat turned up, so to speak, in the battle, what did they do? They didn't stay and fight. They flew away. They took off. They became cowards in that sense. And so this is exactly what they did. When the invading armies broke through, they took off. Now, part of that might have been the, the fact that they were drunk, and they might be like, I'm not in good shape to handle this right now. I better just get out of Dodge and try to save my life. Part of it may have been they, they knew that they had been had. They knew that this was a coalition of armies that they weren't going to be able to survive. And so they, they just went to save their lives. So it's just kind of interesting to see, again, this first 
taunt song. Now we're going to look at the second taunt song. And this kind of wraps up the book. And um, this, is, this is literally the final nail in the coffin. This is the last swing right here. He's going to put the final nail in the coffin of Nahum's oracle. And what he's going to do is say this in verse 18. Your shepherds slumber, O king of Assyria. Your nobles rest in the dust. Your people are scattered on the mountains and no one gathers them. Now, it's really interesting and, and, it, and it's kind of subtle, but I want you to see there in verse 18, Nahum addresses the king of Assyria. Now, why would he address the king of Assyria if they're, they've been destroyed? See, the, why would he address the king of Assyria if they've already been destroyed? But you know what history tells us is that after Nineveh's destruction, you know, you remember the story of, of the king who had gathered uh, of Nineveh when, when Nineveh was breached and he realized that he was not going to escape. He locked himself and his family and his wives and his children and all the noble families. He locked them in a temple with all of his wealth that he could collect. He locked everybody in the temple. And when he realized that the army was about to break into the temple, he, he flipped the match and lit them all on fire. So he actually killed himself. This ki- the, the king did. But what we find from history is that another king tried to regather the Assyrians and recoup them as a country. History tells us he, this king did this for three years. He tried to hold the empire together from the city of Haran. And here's what's really interesting. That final taunt song, Nahum's even telling that king, don't even try it. <laughs> don't even try to hold this empire together. You guys are done. But the king doesn't listen. His, history tells us he tried for three years. He couldn't pull it back together. And the Assyrians vanished off the face of the earth as a people group, which is a miracle. Uh, we'll talk about that in terms of archaeology here in a second, in history. But notice what he says. He's talking to the king. He says, your shepherds slumber. And so now he, he's off the, the locust analogy. Now he's on a shepherding sheep analogy and kind of keeps that through the rest uh, of the book. Now, the shepherds represent the leaders of the nation. To slumber means what? They're falling asleep on the job. Now, one of the things that we know about shepherds, and again, uh, you know, I only know anything about shepherds because I read the Bible and, and st- have studied the Bible and had to look that up. Otherwise, I wouldn't know anything about shepherds. It's not something, I, I've never met anyone in my life that's been a shepherd. Um, that's kind of a, you know, an overseas thing. Uh, well, I mean, I, Never mind. There's probably some in America too. I've never met one personally, so I don't really know much about it. So I had to look it up. But one of the things that you, that you know about shepherds is one of the things you cannot do as a shepherd is you cannot fall asleep on the job. And part of the reason is, is you've got dangerous animals out there that want your sheep. And then you've got sheep that don't understand that there are dangerous animals that are out there and they do really dumb things and wander off. Right? So you got, this, you got this twofold reason why you cannot fall asleep when you're shepherding sheep. They need to be, uh, remain alert. They need to, not, not only, to, again, to enemies outside, but, but the foolish decisions that sheep make on the inside. So, so this description of shepherd slumbering right away, that should spark our mind, say, ooh, that's a negative thing. Like shepherds should not be falling asleep on the job. He also says your nobles rest in the dust. So again, he's talking about the leaders of Assyria. To rest in the dust means to dwell or live there or remain there for a relatively long... In other words, they're, they're lying down in the dust. So that could refer to two things, right? It could refer to, um, one, they're lying down on the, on the job, or it could be a euphemism for death, okay? Your nobles have been killed. Uh, they no longer are alive. Or 
They're just lazy, not doing anything. They're falling asleep on the job. They're just laying in the dirt is kind of the idea. So it could be either one of those two things. Either way, it's implying that they're not doing their job, okay? And he's telling them, king of Assyria, your, your shepherds slumber, your nobles are in the dust. Like, why do you keep trying to put this thing back together? Again, it's a taunt song. He's taunting him. He's, in a sense, talking trash, if you will. Your people are scattered on the mountains. No one gathers them. Again, it, this, again, carries forward this shepherding sheep analogy. And this is what happens when shepherds fall asleep on the job. Sheep begin to wander. Do you know that they say about sheep that they are constantly hungry? They're, and that reminds me of like teenage boys, right? It's like, it's very similar to that. And, but sheep, when they're hungry, guess what they do? Oftentimes they go look for food, but you'll literally, they say you'll put them in front of a green field and they'll go to a, to a dirt field. Like they, it's almost like they, they can't make decisions. Uh, they don't make good decisions. They, they make harmful decisions. And then, they'll, and then they'll yell at the shepherd, even when he puts them in front of a green field saying, I'm hungry, I want food. And the shepherd's like, it's right there. And so you get, sheep are fun to study because, boy, they are just interesting animals and stubborn on top of it. But, you know, one of the things that you'll see with sheep over the, over the years, just stories, they'll get attacked by wild animals. Again, they'll go, they can't find food, so they'll starve to death if they don't have a shepherd. They, they walk into dangerous situations that they can't recover from. Sheep can't swim. So as long as they walk into a still, in a body of water, like a, a small creek, they're fine but they don't know the difference between a still body of water and a raging river. And so oftentimes sheep will just walk right into a raging river, can't swim, they'll just float down and drown. And they do stuff like that all the time. And sheep will, will jump because they can climb on rocks. They'll jump off of a mountain and the next person, next sheep will come along and go, oh, I wonder what happened to him. Well, let me try. And they'll jump too. And so you got this picture that they are scattered. They're in big danger because there's no leaders left. And he, again, it's a taunt. He's like, y'all are done. <laughs> Quit trying to keep this thing together. And so again, no one gathers them. This is that kind of that final nail, right? They're never gonna come back together as a people. The Assyrians cease to exist from that point forward in history. And it's, even for historians, this is a unique event in history because lots of nations were destroyed. Kingdoms and empires were destroyed during this time and their people lived on, but not the Assyrians. They ended right here. And so we see, again, this was divine justice. God, God is the one who took them out, and he said he would. Now, going to verse 19, we'll kind of finish up here. Your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. All who hear news of you will clap their hands over you, for upon whom has not your wickedness passed continually." So again, your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. He's saying what? You're never going to recover. It's over. There's nothing more you can do. And so this is uh, backed up by archaeology and history. And, and then, oh, by the way, how are other people going to respond when this happens to you, Nineveh? How are other people in the world going to respond? Well, we see it. It's, it's party time, right? They're celebrating. This is a way to say that the entire world is going to celebrate. And it's going to give us a very final point as to why the world's going to be so excited about this. But notice what he says. Uh, it's all encompassing. All, all who hear news of you will clap their hands over you. It means no one's going to be disappointed or sad or empathetic to their destruction. They're all going to be excited. 
I mean, can you imagine getting the world right now, even just as it is, excited about the same thing? That would be almost impossible. But you can see how much the, the hatred for the Ninevites, the, 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 you know, the despising of them was universal. I guess that's what this verse really shows us. And so when people hear news of the destruction, they're gonna be, there's going to be universal applause and rejoicing. And by the way, who's going to be one of the nations leading that applause? The nation of Judah, right? Nahum's audience, Nahum meaning uh, comfort. That's what his name meant. It was a comfort to Judah to know that they were getting rid of the biggest bully that had ever bullied them before. In fact, years earlier, they had taken the northern kingdom into captivity. They had tried to do that with Judah some 40 years before this book. But you know what's even more incredible? That doesn't surprise me because uh, the nation of Judah, we have their history recorded. What's really shocking is this. I think the next point, when we talk about all, uh, in a world full of polytheistic pagan nations, each one of them also applaud the destruction of Nineveh. That's what's, that to me is incredible because they're all wicked. They're all polytheistic. The only reason they haven't conquered Nineveh is because they haven't been strong enough to. They wanted to, but they, they hadn't been able to put it together. Even them that have committed the same types of atrocities as the Ninevites, they were excited about the elimination of this nation. Why? And this is kind of that last phrase in verse 19. Notice the word for. That gives us the reason. And this is exactly why. For upon whom has not your wickedness passed continually. And what that tells us is this, is that the Assyrians were so mighty and strong at the peak of their empire, they could bully anyone they wanted to and nobody could do anything about it. What a terrible nation. You can see why everyone's excited. Finally, they're taken out. Now, I'm sure the polytheistic nations thought, well, it's good that Babylon and the Medes and the, and the uh, Sumerians and some of these other nations formed a coalition of forces. And, and boy, that was really providential that it flooded that night in the gay spurt. So, so thank goodness that they put that thing together. But the nation of Judah knew better. What did they know? God, our God was behind this. Our God took care of this nation. Our God executed this divine justice. And so this question, it's posed at the end of name. Notice it's, it's actually posed as a question. But it's a way of making a statement because Assyria was evil to anybody that it came, that it crossed paths with. And it always, uh, the nation always seemed to get away with it. That is why when they finally get their just due, people are gonna be pumped up. And so it gives God's, again, ultimate reason for God's judgment. And, and this is what we wanna take away. There's some things that we wanna take away from this whole series on the book of Jonah. If I can just make some closing statements. But sin requires judgment, Period. Uh, there's, this, there's this notion today that, that we can get uh, rid of individual sin or we can have forgiveness of sins by asking God to simply forgive us. That's not biblical. God forgives sin by executing justice on a substitute. Justice has to be executed or then God is a miscarrier of justice. This is why the gospel is such good news because Jesus died. He took our justice that we deserved upon himself. God remains just, and yet he's also loving because he provides a way for you and I to escape justice in the person of our substitute. That's how God forgives sin. Sin is always judged, just like in the Passover lamb story, which pictured Jesus Christ. A, a person died in every house in Egypt that night. Either the firstborn died 
or the lamb died in the firstborn place. But there was a death in every household. And that's the case with the gospel. Justice has to be executed. And so when we finished this series, you know, we called it God's strange work for a reason because we, I felt like in this series, it was an opportunity to look at different character qualities of God, not elevating one over above the other, but presenting God, uh, hopefully in an emotionally balanced and stable character, because that's who God is. The most emotionally balanced and stable character that you will ever see in the universe's history. In fact, we can't even picture somebody emotionally balanced and stable, and it's becoming harder and harder in our day to find somebody emotionally balanced and stable, even from a human level. But God is all of that and more. And we looked at that in the book of Jonah because we saw his mercy and his grace. Here in Nineveh, we see his justice, his anger, his wrath, but we see patience along the way. He's just an amazing God. And you know, when we talk about God, he's holy and just. He must punish sin. He's perfect. He demands perfection. He sees everything, even at a heart and mind level. He sees it all and he must punish sin. But he's also loving. He doesn't want to execute justice on people. And so he devises a solution so that people can avoid judgment. And then he does what? He waits. He gives people time. He's, he's patient to hear about the solution, to be convinced of the solution, and then to trust in his solution. And this is exactly what he did, even with the Ninevites, right? Because that's who he had originally taken the message to in the book of Jonah. But at some point, at some point after a long waiting period, after a, him being very long-suffering and patient and giving people opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, at some point he must execute justice. He must engage in his, what we call, strange work. And that's exactly what we see here in the story of Jonah, in Nahum, in the story of Nineveh, the history of Nineveh, but it's also what we see in the gospel. It's the same exact thing. God is patient. He is not willing that any should perish. He doesn't want anyone to go to hell. And he gives opportunity after opportunity to hear the good news of his solution. He doesn't want us to try to add to his solution. He doesn't want us to try to improve his solution. He wants us to take his solution and say, I believe that. That's what I'm trusting in. If I can't get to heaven on that, then I don't deserve to go anyways, but I'm going to trust in Jesus Christ, the fact that he died for me and rose again. And if that's not good enough, I sure don't have a chance. Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you um, for your word, and I just thank you for your character, Lord. It, it, it is something that I'm sure that we will continue to, to marvel at as we, begin, we understand it even better into eternity. And um, just so grateful for this opportunity um, to look at these Old Testament books, which oftentimes we, we may feel don't have any application to us, and yet we come away from it, hopefully just... Um, uh, with, with you and, and your accomplishment and who you are, more exalted in our thinking than, than when we came in. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.